Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is called The National Gallery, and it contains sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies lamenting the death of my iPhone, and other strange missives from yours truly, the Poet Laureate of Hell. Visit thenationalgallery.ca to order your signed copy. That's thenationalgallery.ca. So I'm here with Justin Curry, also known as Chasing Artwork, uh, whose work you can see at chasingartwork.com, but do you want to just talk uh, for a little bit, Justin, about how you would describe your artwork, or your just style? Um, so I am, yeah, traditionally trained as a graphic designer, and um, that's kind of where I started off my career. I, I was always drawing growing up, and I grew up in like a, a fairly small town of, uh, well, a village really, La Riviere, and... Yeah, drawing is not really a career option, right? So um, as I was approaching graduation, I was kind of pushed to find something that you can actually get a job with, and graph design was the next best thing. I wanted to, to draw. Um, couldn't do that, but graph design was still kind of artsy, and then you could actually get a job with it. And so I enrolled with Red River College uh, for their graph design program, which is a, a two-year um, program or three year to get an advanced diploma and uh, you can actually take the exact almost the same course at U of M but it's four years with a five year optional so it's condensed at Red River Um, and so yeah I didn't really like graph design at first Um, the first year I think I struggled quite a bit and didn't really like it Um, but in second year everything started kind of clicking together and I started to get a handle on, you know, how to use Adobe Illustrator and Adobe Photoshop and InDesign and all those programs. And I started to kind of see the marriage of my illustration and this design training. And that's when the style kind of developed and that's when everything just kind of started clicking into place. And I started really liking graph design and kind of getting getting into it. Um, so when I graduated, I, uh, I got a... a work placement through the, the program at a design firm, and then they hired me full-time after school. And yeah, I started started doing graph design by day, and at night I was kind of developing this illustration style based in Adobe Illustrator, which is a program that nobody uses except for graph designers. Like, it's specifically for graph design. So I've always thought I had, like, a really... The name doesn't make sense. It's Adobe Illustrator, and no illustrator wants to do illustrations in Adobe Illustrator. Um, So why did you start illustrating in Adobe Illustrator, then? Because I had to work in it all day, and if I wanted to do anything kind of on the side while I was supposed to be working, I'd have it kind of in the program. Like, so I'd have... Adobe Illustrator has, like, this massive canvas. It's um, incredibly... Uh, like data efficient like Photoshop if you have like a 50 inch canvas by 50 inch canvas it's gonna slow down your computer Illustrator just defaults to a like Hmm. 200 inch by 200 inch canvas and then you set your little 8.5 by 11 like artboard that's where you're gonna work Um, but you always have this massive canvas so you can have a project in one corner and another project in another corner another project in another corner and when you save it out it's gonna be like maybe 70 megs Wow. Yeah, so it's it's just... You could literally, like, be working on your day job stuff here, then in the corner, <laughs> you could just scroll over. Which is exactly what I was doing. I had, like, I was had a transformer over in one corner, and then I was working on a branding package in the other corner. Hmm. And so I could kind of snap back and forth. Um, so it was just like I, I was in it every day and just got really familiar with the program and started to kind of find all these neat little tricks and techniques and then just started trying them out with illustration and things started clicking and then when I started going to comic cons while I was still working as a graphic designer um, it really stood out because nobody had anything like it Hmm. Um, so I kind of like won the lottery style wise just the way things developed like I know I have a lot of friends who I think are better illustrators but their styles 
look like a lot of other styles, whereas mine is this weird offshoot that kind of stands by its own. And that's kind of, that's really helped me out. It's interesting because when it, just to kind of think about how I teach creative writing and like one of the things I kind of am always telling students is that it really helps to be developing a style, even if you think it's not very good. Like, yeah. <laughs> like even if yeah. you're doing something, like one of the sort of weird things about, I think art in general, but you know, I, when I teach it, it's, I'm always talking about writing, but is that, you know, often when you're starting out, you're doing certain things wrong mm-hmm. and you're trying really, really hard to do them right, you know, to do them like other people. But the danger there is that you're going to do everything like another person and you're not going to have anything unique to you. And weirdly, like what, what you need is like to salvage a certain amount of things that you're doing wrong <laughs> and uh, just double down on those things because yeah. that's going to be your style. That's going to be the thing you're going to do different. And it's going to be both the thing that people hate in your work uh, or that they love in it. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's going to be like, weirdly, I feel like you got to look for that thing that is different enough that it can get a reaction. Uh, and, and I like to say that like, I, I, I like to, my like saying about it is like, you can't be somebody's favorite band unless you're somebody's least favorite band. Like, right. like you really want those reactions as opposed to just sort of being a, you don't want to be elevator music. You want to... You don't want to yeah. be elevator music. Yeah. Just going to put it... You guys have talked on your podcast, Justin's podcast, uh, Super Pulp Science. Um, they've talked a couple of times about like being at an art show and that, that idea of the heel pivot, like somebody walking past your table, then they kind of turn and come back. Yeah. And I don't feel like you can get that reaction if you're just doing good work. Like, like not that, that your work's not good, but like, like there's that kind of good work of like... It's like professional level work that yeah. like, yes, it is good and it can be recognizably, you know, everyone, we can all agree that this is good, but maybe it looks like somebody else's thing. And it can be, you know, th- there's a career there, but I think that there's a, it's, it's almost, um, uh, it's hard to maybe see sometimes, at least when somebody's starting out, like that's certain things that you're doing differently or wrong, quote unquote, are, are maybe the things that are going to actually, uh, you shouldn't be ironing out. Mm-hmm. So I don't know like how you, I, I never, my sort of missing link in this is it's hard sometimes to have good advice about like what things are those things and what things are just like. I don't know if you can really quantify or figure it out early on. I think mm-hmm. it's, it all comes down to the mileage and you just need to work and work and work. And it's, it kind of just evolves. It's, I don't think it's like a conscious choice. I think you just need to like learn from as many sources as you can and try to emulate as many things that you find inspiring and eventually kind of your own style presents itself. I, yeah, like early on, I really, like I was really focusing to become like other artists. Like I I had like styles that I wanted to be like, but it was always kind of changing. Like I'd be obsessed with this artist for like a good year or two and then it would change to somebody else and change to somebody else. And then like I think as soon as I stopped worrying about my style, that's when I started seeing that I had one. Sure. And yeah. now you describe your style often as shattered vector. Can you like talk a little bit about like what you think the kind of qualities of your style are? So I didn't have a name for it when I first started doing it. Um, it's kind of the, the style is based on transparency. So I kind of get a, almost like a a really simplistic silhouette block of like let's say I'm doing a character I'll kind of get like a a really rough shape and then I use the Pathfinder tools what it's called in Illustrator and kind of draw draw lines through it to kind of um, to have this kind of overlapping silhouettes and then I I hit Pathfinder and everywhere the shapes intersect it cuts it Hmm. so I end up with all these kind of broken pieces and then I set all those to a transparency to like 80% multiply. So anytime they overlap, they're kind of darkening each other. Mm. And so it's almost like layered broken glass. And I just pile and pile and pile. And so it's this really fractal style. Um, and that's kind of, that's like the really rough um, work process. But then as I get a little more into the piece, I'll get... I compare it to Lego a lot, like I'll build interesting shape patterns or interesting, um, I do a lot of robots, so interesting mechanical parts, and then I'll use those over and over and over again. And the, the great thing about Illustrator that I can't really emulate as well in Photoshop is I'll take a lot of pieces and 
make it like small and then duplicate it 10 times and I'll have this like small cluster. Then I'll take one of those pieces and enlarge it 20 times as big and then use that in like a bigger piece of the composition. And what that does is it saves me time and it also is feeding off its own shape language. So I'm kind of like ripping parts from over here small and making them big over there and then twisting them over here. And if you try to do the same thing in Photoshop, eventually you're going to start to you'll run out of resolution. You can't just grab a tiny cluster of shadows on this guy's leg and enlarge them, you know, the size of the full background. It's not going to work. But in Illustrator, I do that all the time. Now, what appeals to you about the fractal kind of shattered style? I think it's got this nice kind of chaotic feel. Like it's it's kind of it's organic but it's also because all the edges and lines are so straight and precise because it's it's a design vector program. Um, it's this great juxtaposition of like fluid designs made out of all these broken straight edge pieces. Sure, and then you also mm. often have like these like large small composition juxtapositions as well. So I find like in general like having sharp contrast and juxtapositions work. Uh, do you is that do you think that's partly like your kind of interest in those kind of sharper contrasts are to some degree part of your design training, or is that something you've always been really drawn to? I think that was definitely the design training. That yeah. was yeah, it's definitely a product of the program and the the tools I'm using. Um, because my my actual like my traditional illustration wasn't really looking like that at all. Really? So yeah. you just you know went in a new direction entirely after. It, yeah, it was totally a product of of experimenting in the program and figuring it out in there. It's you know like you give a, somebody a watercolor painter, you give them oils for the first time, um, or you know something even a little more drastic, you know, give them a computer with Photoshop. Like they're probably not going to do. They might do the same thing off the bat. They'll try to emulate the same thing, but eventually they're going to figure out a new way of doing things, and it'll look different. You know, it's interesting because you know I too grew up in a village, like a town of about a hundred people, mm -hmm. really small. Um, when people think small towns, sometimes they're talking to me and they're talking like ten thousand people, and I was yeah. like, wow, <laughs> like, like a real you know classified as a village, village, and like you it was you know there's nobody there who had done. Uh, even heard of anyone who'd you know they never even met somebody who like had had a career in the arts mm -hmm. and so it just didn't seem like a path like you say um and, and so on and then similarly like when i went to school i started to kind of i did differently in because i went to the university of manitoba i started doing um an english degree but one thing i did in that english degree was uh, they taught me um about this poet uh, from uh the prairie is called robert croach and he had a poetic style where he was doing these longer poems, like these long like, book-length poems, but they were very, very fragmentary. Like, there's these, these tiny fragments. Like, he'd have a page where it was just, like, f excerpts from, like, an old seed catalog. And then, like, on another, you know, his most famous poem is called Seed Catalog. And, uh, and then on another page, it'd be, like, little tiny fragment about, like, something that happened in his childhood. Then another page would be, like, little tiny fragment. It's almost like collage. Yeah, it was very yeah. much like, he, he was very much doing, like, a collage in, yeah. like, text fragments. And it, to me, it just blew my brain open in, that, in the same sort of way where I started to really get drawn to fragments, and, like, things that are constructed are these, like, textual fragments or little tiny shards where you just are juxtaposing um, for a reaction. You know, like, something, like, kind of, whatever sweet versus something like yeah. dark and disturbing you know and kind of just flopping back and forth without um and trying to manage an audience's uh, reaction in that respect so it's curious you know uh i but i think like um one thing that i find interesting too about your stuff is that you know uh i don't see you do too much actual like work in say in comics but uh you know, you've done like some uh, books, like you know, Casting Tonk is the one I think of, mm -hmm. um, just because it's sitting. I see a poster photo there, yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, and it's the first one like where I kind of I think became aware of your work was Casting Tonk, if I recall correctly. Um, but then also, uh, even just on your single like image compositions, they're very suggestive of uh, like a sto like storytelling. So I'm wondering if you like think, how do you see yourself as uh, 
a storyteller uh, and like what do you think um, the difference is between like I don't know say telling a story in images versus um, like just presenting images that don't necessarily have like a story suggestiveness I think that just comes from like my favorite type of artwork to look at was always concept art or um, an, like an image that wasn't attached to a full story but you could tell had a story attached to it like that world building that you can do with just a single image always really really fascinated me like here is a picture of like a little girl giving like holding an umbrella for like a big robot like like I can without knowing anything else about what's going on like my mind starts to build the rap, the world around that and every time I saw an image like that that was kind of the stuff I was um, like I would gravitate to and with storytelling as well, the last couple the books that I've done and the ones I, I'm continuing to doing, I, I, I always compare them to the storytelling of like the Pixar shorts. Like I want to do a story that will make somebody cry or get angry or like fill them with emotions in like a four-minute segment. Like those are always, I think, my favorite my favorite thing to watch is like short sci-fi stories or sh- yeah, Pixar short like that kind of incredibly powerful storytelling done with just a couple scenes. That's the kind of stuff I I like and want to do. So, uh, how do you decide? Is that the thing you're looking for when you're kind of uh, thinking about different ideas you might have for you know an image, and then settling on like one to kind of focus on? Is that the kind of thing you're you're, you're kind of thinking about? Like, well, what is do I want to know more with a story for? Or is there like some criteria in your head about like, say you got like 10 ideas when you're selecting one, like what's the sort of decision maker for you in a sense? I think it's, you know, like anybody working on books, I've got like 20 ish stories kind of floating around and just kind of comes down to which one is the clearest in my head and the most excited that I'm going to, yeah, the most the one that excites me most to get started. And I think like a lot in my in my story, I want to have um I want to build a world and then explain like next to nothing about it. I want sure. like the reader Just to suggest everything. Yeah, like characters walking through a desert with like all this, you know, ancient crazy large machinery. Like I love stuff like that. Like you're never going to know what that huge machine did or how it came to be there or yeah, if it's alive or not, but like we're going to walk past it and we're going to make you think about that, but you'll never know. And I've always thought that was better than explaining every single piece about the world. Um, one of my favorite like movies growing up was the iron giant and I remember as a kid, like, wanting to know the origin story of, like, the Iron Giant. And as I became older and started making my other stories, I realized how terrible it would be if they explained where the Iron Giant came yeah. from and, like, his whole backstory. So that kind of stuff is... It makes it big. smaller, right? Like, that's, I think that's the paradox. Like, they think they're making it bigger, but they're making the whole world smaller by mm-hmm. getting into, like, the prequel of it or whatever. Yeah. Rarely do you see it work. I mean, it sometimes will work. But uh, generally, I think it's like that weird paradox of like those. I see a lot in horror where it's like you want to know a lot about this mysterious thing, but the more you know about it, the less interesting it is. So, yeah, especially like nowadays with all the expanding universes where they want to just, you know, a property worked for the one movie. Now they want to delve into like every single aspect Mm -hmm. of that movie. And that kind of it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't make the world better. Like it shrinks it down. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think in a weird way. Yeah. We would just go back to Cassie and Tonk. So uh, when you started uh, working on that, now that came from an image you had drawn, the one you described, right? Yeah, that was, um, I was, after working at a design <laughs> agency, um, illustration and Comic-Cons kind of became, I was getting more and more freelance and doing better and better at shows. And I made the transition from graphic design to concept artist and interface designer at a video game company. Um, and that's where, like, I was kind of doing illustration and, like, a little bit of design for my full-time job. And then I was picking up a lot of freelance design. And then I was doing all the Comic-Cons. Um, and one day I realized I was making more Comic-Cons and I wasn't my full-time job. So, like, it kind of, like, it hit me like a brick. Like, I could quit my job and just do that. 
and nobody had like ever I just had never crossed yeah. my mind. It was like totally just why hadn't somebody told me that? Like, if you're making more money on the side, quit your full-time job. In fact, you're told your whole <laughs> life you can't do that. And, yeah, that's it. I think, like, I grew up, like, you get a 9 to 5, and, like, mm-hmm. that's, you know, you don't mess with that. You have that 9 to 5, and you try to hold on to it. Like, don't ever get rid of it. So it was, like, a really hard, like, mental pivot to, like, leave the 9 to 5 to do my own thing. And what I wanted to do, like, now that I was starting my own company, like, now that Chasing Artwork was going to be a, a thing, um, I wanted to take the step into graphic novels. And so Cassie and Tonk was kind of a story that had been brewing around for a while. And it was almost as much, you know, kind of a, a pilot project for the new company, but also to prove to myself that I could make a graphic novel. I'd done, like, a little bit of sequential work before, but I'd never done a full story. So it was kind of just to see if I could do it. Yeah. So why did you end up looking for a writer on it? Because I know so many people in that position who just, they decide to write it themselves, which I think is usually a mistake. But uh, most people do it. Yeah. Um, and it can work. But like, where, where, what is it that kind of moved you towards actually looking for a writing partner? Um, I think like, the, I'd, I'd been staring at the story. It was, it was, it had just been in my own head for so long I think part of it was I needed somebody else to weigh in and tell me like what was working and what wasn't. Um, I also um, chose like Gregory Kamichuk to, to write the book because he had published a lot of graphic novels before. He was one of the only people that I knew in the city who was doing graphic novels as a serious thing. And even mm-hmm. he was just doing it on the side at that point. It wasn't his full-time gig. Um, so it was also kind of to get the advice of like, Okay, I know I can make this book and get it printed, but then like I don't I don't know what to do after that, like, you know, publishing options and and all that stuff. So I kind of also wanted um like some mentorship on how bookmaking is done. And so he was kind of he wore a couple hats with that, like with the the business of it and then the storytelling and um it was it was also great. Like I don't think we would have worked on another project if um you know, he was like a lot of writers that I've I've met, but he was. We just had a lot of fun story breaking and playing around with the story, and just like what if this and then that, like the, just the the evolution of it was very natural and organic, and um, I think like we just worked really well as a team and could kind of see where each other was going. Um, it wasn't just like, hey, work on this project, and then he gives me a script and I follow that script. It was a very much a, a back-and-forth relationship on it. And you did a follow-up, uh, Rest of the Water, as yeah. well. Uh, and now, and you're also working on a book. Uh, I don't know. Have you talked about it on the, this podcast, Superhelp Science? I can't remember now. Uh, Dragon Nanny. Big, it's not a secret. No, it's okay. not. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you were also working on this book, Dragon Nanny. Yes. I don't you know that... Uh, is sort of also in that same world. And you've also done a, um, uh, you, ha- you had another writer, Clara C. Marshall, yep. write a novelization, or not a novelization, but a novel set in the same world. Yes. Like this, you know, Silent Guardians world. We have a just universe kind of building, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so where did the idea to com- come about to write that uh, novel set in the world? And why did you decide to, um, uh, you know, find a- another writer as opposed to, say, you know, you and Gregory doing it? Um, I think we just, it was, we, we knew Claire, we liked Claire, we had, um, seen her work around for years and just got to know her and it just became an opportunity. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think like Greg really wanted to do a novel like that. I think we were both excited to see, to get like some fresh blood into the universe and see what somebody else could do with it. Um... So it was just kind of an, an opportunity to expand the the business and the story and the, just the scope of our audience because she also, um, she appeals to a different audience that Gregory and I do. So it was kind of a, just a, yeah, a need to build that arm and see what it could do. And have you thought, um, I mean, you're, you're thinking about doing a bunch of stuff in this kind of, you, you know, I guess you're calling it Silent Guardians world more or less. I think I've figured out that Almost all the stories I want to tell have robots in them. So wouldn't it be neat if they're all yeah. connected? Like none of them are really, none of them meet at this point, but they, it's pretty, 
Um, pretty cool to say they all take place in the same universe, and so far that's been working out great. And um, when, when you kind of are looking at, a, you know, wor- working with a writer on some project, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, like with Greg co-working on this book or, you know, with Claire, you know, having somebody kind of come into this world that, you know, obviously you're going to kind of be weighing in on that story and things and directing it in certain ways, but like you're not, you know, co-writing it or no. necessarily um, working alongside her the way that you might have worked alongside Gregory, say. Uh, but like, what are the kinds of things you're looking for in a, uh, like a, a writer partner and those respects like what are the sort of things that you found you, so Gregory you found it very um, it was just you were feeding off each other well mm-hmm. is that the sort of the thing that's most important to you or is it something you're looking for in some so like with way? with Claire um, we knew that she was talented and knew what she was doing so we treated it like how we wanted to be treated on a project here are the loose guidelines here's like the world bible go to town, like, do what you do best. Um, anytime there's been too much hand-holding on a project, I find it stifles it, and so I, I don't like working that way. And that's why I don't think I would have worked with Gregory if it had been, like, here's the script, here's what they say on this page, this page. I don't think I could work as well that way. Um, and so that's what we did with, with Claire, we just kind of, yeah, we gave her loose guidelines and let her do her thing because that's what she does best. Um, and same with, like, the next project, uh, Dragon Nanny. Greg has kind of been jotting notes, but he's really waiting for me to do my thing, to, like, start pumping out the pages and tell the story visually. And then once I've kind of done my thing to a degree, that's when he jumps in and starts doing his thing. But for now, it's kind of, it's all in my court. To, for me to have fun with. So for like the um, uh, song, the books that you and Greg are doing in, in that world, um, you're sort of really trying to let the visuals take the lead on the storytelling. Yeah, we try to make the entire, I think especially with Rust and Water, that entire story was I think like 95% told visually. Um, and Greg had been, Greg had done like a kind of a pass at the script but it wasn't until I was pretty much done the book that he came in and really started working on it. And I mean, like, not to say he wasn't working on it. Like, I would but yeah, bring I him over mean. and say, like, check out how this is working. Do we think we need another page here? And, like... And writing against the images. Yes, yeah. yeah. So the images dictated the story, not the writing. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm doing a, a comic project with Gregory. And one of the... I, initially, I'd hired him to just do some concept art. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, trying to pitch the idea off the concept art. And then I wasn't getting anywhere with it. And he was <coughs> like, why don't you just you know, write text over the concept art. And I actually, weirdly, like, I found, like, I actually just turned the art into comics pages. I didn't even have to change anything. There you go. <laughs> because, because he had that visual flow to the, like, he kind of turned it into a story, um, even though, it was, you know, like, he had originally been working from a script, but it wasn't, like, he didn't really illustrate the script, if that makes sense. Yeah. But it was kind of like... You know that kind of Marvel method. It became the very much that like working off the imagery and letting the imagery uh, take control, which I think is. Uh, I mean, for me, it was a bit of a harder thing to learn because mm-hmm. I'm so used to just working with this text and the text is you know leading the way. But but it, you know it's it's a shockingly um, those, those images just have so much. Like it's the cliche is like the pictures worth a thousand words, right? But yeah. like but the images really do have like this incredible amount of power to suggest things beyond the frame. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that it's uh, it almost I think works best when the text uh, is just juxtaposing it with the imagery and not really trying to replicate it or yeah. or like double function. It yeah, you don't need to redundant redundancy where mm-hmm. yeah, if if this image is clearly conveying the message, do we really need it again in a box covering up some of the image? Yeah, yeah. no, that's oh. exactly right. And it sounds weird to say it. I mean, there it sounds nice and simple, but it's a yeah. hard lesson, I think, for a writer to learn. Oh, it's, yeah. Um, especially, I think, with like earlier projects, like when I was working from a script, it was always kind of my goal to do a good enough job that words would be taken away. Like, mm-hmm. to, to, you know, convey what that text says in yeah well enough that they don't need the text anymore it's always kind of my goal to uh to make you know the movie wally and you know have 
40 minutes without any dialogue whatsoever and tell that story. I was thinking of Wally when yeah. we were talking before about like robots and you know, we were Pixar and so on. Yeah. Like uh, it seems like, you know, the movie for you. In, in any oh, definitely. Yeah. I was so angry at like all the people complaining about like there was there's no words in that movie for the first like 45 minutes and people didn't like that. I was like, that's the best part yeah, of it. Yeah, the best part of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I was disappointed almost when they started talking. Yeah. It's still a good movie, but like mm. it, it does, you know, sort of. I mean, yeah, it's just different. It, it, it works so well. Um, I could have watched the whole movie like that, yeah. for sure. Um, do you find that it is, uh, like, how do you see your style um, and your you know, interest in story, like, telling through your style, uh, changing over, the, you know, as, as time goes on? Um, so I think the focus is pretty, it's kind of divided between making one-off posters and prints for Comic-Cons and doing... Um, storytelling, and I'd like to eventually shift more into the storytelling, but I don't quite have the the business model working as well on the storytelling side. Um, so I think like once that starts to catch up more to the poster making business, then I you know then the focus will go to to making stories. Um, yeah, like I, I've got a lot of stories I want to tell, but I find that. The, the one-off posters are, they're easy and exciting and they, they make money quickly. Whereas the books are kind of the, like the long tail of the comet. Yeah, books are a real long tail. Yeah. yeah. So, and you know, the, the market's always changing. Like my job now didn't exist 10 years ago. Like I couldn't, chasing artwork as a company couldn't be a thing in 2010. But in 2020, we have this, you know, this, the sea of comic cons is happening right now. And so there's this, yeah, whole new way for nerds to pay me money to do my thing. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of years, especially with, you know, publishing and bookmaking. It seems like things are shifting around in that arena. A lot of, a lot of mumbling going on about how things you know, work is based off of really old models that don't really mm-hmm. work as well as they used to. Um, so I'm kind of excited to see how that changes. And yeah, I feel like the long, like the long tail. I was talking to my accountant once, and um, he was saying something. He was chastising me for putting too much money in uh, retirement savings. No. And not enough in short-term investments. And I was thinking, this is an odd thing for me to say. <laughs> yeah. He goes, well, he goes, but you keep in mind, he goes, you're writing books. He's like, when you retire and are dead, you could easily make more money than you're making now. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and <I was> like, <laughs> like, he's like, that's your business, right? Like, yeah, I guess in a weird way, it is yeah. my business. Unfortunately, my business model is when I'm dead, <laughs> I'll yeah. be making all this money. <laughs> but, you know, in a weird sort of, but, you know, um, I, I always, but 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 it is like a thing where um, I think it's interesting to kind of um, just kind of think about like not wanting to put all your eggs in like one basket or other. You guys have talked a lot on your podcast yeah. about like you know the, you know the comic cons and you know, the kind of up and down of just that whole market and you know uh, books of course are their own up and down market. Yeah. But but you know if you're least in like five different up and down markets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, no matter what's happening, you're, you can be doing diversify. Right. Yeah. But in a weird sort of way, um, uh, do you find do you feel like there's a type of story that you're most attracted to? Um, I got, you mean of course, like you know, you said robots, but like, yeah. outside of like robots in general, but like in terms of like what the story is about or the themes, is there something you find particularly interesting or attractive? There, yeah, there there are some themes, but I feel like I uh, I shouldn't tell all the stories that I want to tell with that with this certain type of theme because that's going mm. to wear it out for me sure so uh, like yeah the next two books kind of are along the same vein as like Cassie and Tonk and Rust and Water but I think after that I should switch gears and do something maybe a little more adult and kind of gory or a horror you know just mm-hmm. to kind of cleanse my palate of like the kind of the Pixar-esque story that I've been kind of aiming to achieve um, I also I've got like a couple kids books like on the go like and that's every it's like a palate cleanse every once in a while they do a book like that but I am 
I'm like a little afraid that I'll tell the same kind of story too many times and kind of burn out on that or my audience will burn out like we, you know, we've heard this story from you and we have them all do something different. So I do have like, yeah, some stories that um, are departure from the stories I've told now and I'm kind of excited to, to try those routes out. Now you guys have been doing a lot of your, like putting out a lot of your own books. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you thought about or been pitching more uh, at all to like publishers to take things or are you not interested in that? Like Gregory does both. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering like, do you have an interest in doing both or moving in that direction? I think, yeah, way, eventually that's the way I want to go. Um, kind of the, the bit of the business plan that we've got going now and I, I haven't been pursuing it too much, but once I have a bit of a catalog of the Silent Guardians, like once I have like four graphic novels kind of with a similar theme set in a similar world with a similar style, I think that would be really appealing for a potential publisher to pick them all up rather than like trying to get, you know, the five books that I've done now, finding individual publishers for them all. For their own, all. I'd kind of like to have a, a cohesive catalog that somebody would pick up. And yeah. when you talk about maybe you know moving into something more extreme or adult like uh, the horror genre, do you? Ha- you know, I, I think that's interesting because of course you've done like um, horror monsters, like you've got an alien over there mm-hmm. and stuff. And uh, I can see your style with that very jagged, fractured way, like lending itself well to horror. Have you done much uh, like tests of that in terms of your illustration, or or have you really like? Um, like I, I don't see like any real horror There's no, pieces. No gore here. going I'm, on. We're literally in <laughs> Justin's studio right now. But like, have you uh, explored that a bit? Like in stuff that maybe you haven't been showing at Comic Cons, or are you just sort of still trying to think of what, a good story to maybe hang your hat on there? I think probably like when I'm thinking horror, like maybe more. Um, like Pan's like, Labyrinth, elaborate. Mm, like sci-fi horror, mm. like almost comic book horror. Like not, oh, yeah. not as much, uh, I'm trying to think of like a good movie to compare it to. Um, not, not, not as much the creepy horror, more sci-fi horror. So the one story mm. that I've got kind of um, brewing that I think will be, you know, like an 18 plus book is called um, While My Bones Burn. And it's about, it's uh, mechs that, um, so the basic premise is AI has been outlawed because it's, um, AIs went live and it, it, they were basically nukes. If you, if a country had AI, they were so overpowered, um, it just wasn't fair and things went bad. So AI has been outlawed. So they have all these machines that they can't have program like the programming can't make these machines work anymore um Hmm. so they're taking basically like homeless and orphaned kids and lobotomizing them and putting their brains in jars into these Hmm. mech robots and making them fight wars for them so there's Hmm. all these mechs with the minds of childs made to be children's soldiers interesting and so then there's the tie-in with as well Hmm. like to make them do the horrible things they need to do, they inject their brains with certain kinds of drugs to make things more, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So, you know, like a lot of, like, horrible things happen, horrible, like, violence and stuff like that, but it's it's kind of set in this Mm sci-fi world. Um, What's what's the appeal of sci-fi to you in particular? It was always just my favorite yeah. genre. Do you know yeah. why? Like, have you thought much about, like, why that is? Like, I've thought a lot about <laughs> my, my horror interest and, like, yeah. what, what I, you know, attracts me to that. And so mm-hmm. I'm just curious, you know, what, if you've, like, sat and, like, thought too much about it. I haven't really dissected it, no. I think, well, also, it's given the the tools and the style and, like, my, what I can do best, I can do sci-fi really, really well. I can, especially like my robotic designs in my style seem to catch the eye of the consumer more so than most people who do robots in a convention filled with 
artist drawing sci-fi stuff. Well, so. What I like about your style and robots in particular, like I'm just right across from me is a Transformer Optimus Prime with like his arm blown off mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, a girl holding a Megatron gun there. And what I think is really, you know, interesting about your style with robots in particular is it, 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 it even, um, well, one, it, it lets you show damage in robots very well. Yeah. And like that starts to suggest all sorts of narrative you know, like story that has happened to put this damage on this robot, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, so it lends itself well, I think in those terms. And then also just, there's just something cool about like bladed robots, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, like your Gundams in particular, like, you know, that, that style just works really well with uh, that kind of um, battle hardened, you know, damaged, you know, but ready, you know, to I think- kill <laughs> kind of bot, you know? And too, like looking at the art, like, you know, going through the internet, like looking at concept art that appealed to me when I see like a robot that's pristine, that looks like it's just out of the box. Cool. But when I see one that's half destroyed with like its arm torn off and all these wires going everywhere, then, you know, I want to know the story of how it came to be like that. Like, what did it just go through to, to, yeah, sustain that kind of damage and what's about to happen next. Now, the last sort of thing I want to ask you about is this uh, image of yours that I just am obs- obsessed with, which is these 3029 images that you're oh, doing. Yeah. So you did this, like, you called it an exercise in branding. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, can you talk a bit about, like, how you developed uh, that set of images and, like, where that kind of just idea came from? Because, I, again, I find it just a really nice, clear contrast between, like, what the images are, these robots in you know, suits, but these massive, like, very unhuman heads that, like, have wires and shards of things coming out of them. and But they're all, like, done up in this very, you know, Armani-style, like, very... Dapper suits, Very yeah. dapper suits. Yeah. And, uh, and it's set against a kind of just straight color backdrop with, like, a logo, mm-hmm. as if, like, a company logo. Yeah. Uh, it just says 3029. Um, you know, either the name of the company or the year or both. Um, and it's... And I'm curious to know like where that uh, idea came from for you, and uh, just what draws you to it. Because to me, like as soon as I saw that image, I a whole like uh, you know, I, I sat down literally and like wrote a whole like storyline. <laughs> you know, that yeah. one of these days I'll take thirty twenty nine off it and use it for something <laughs> else. But, but it's uh, it's very very suggestive. Uh, you know, at least to me, like just that instant like this is a thing, there's some world here, I don't know what it is, but you know, there's some story to these robot suits. So that was um, just every once in a while, I'll kind of get a little mentally exhausted of drawing whatever I've been drawing for the last little while. Um, that was near the end of the year. I think I was just kind of, um, I'd done a lot of fan art for a lot of Comic-Cons, and I was just, I wanted to kind of flex the... I call it like flexing the fine art muscles. Every once in a while, I'll just be driven to do something that has nothing to do with any fandom and just kind of, you know, make something original that's just me. And yeah, so it was just kind of, uh, I just need to do that every once in a while. So it was between that and I also, the only thing I really miss about being a graphic designer was branding packages. I, I really did enjoy doing logos and I hadn't done a logo in a very long time. So I wanted to do something kind of fine artsy with a logo incorporated with it. So that was kind of my mandate. Um, and then I've always kind of, I think I was just going through some some images online and all this nice fashion photography was showing up of just, you know, the, the atypical suited up guy carrying his coffee cup, like posing as he waltzed down the street. And I thought, like, I liked the design of the suit, and I thought what I always think, like, what if that was a robot instead of (laughs) a person? Um, And so I just thought it'd be cool. Let's, you know, put a robot in this super awesome, like, this three-piece suit. It makes no sense whatsoever, but, hey, I'll do that, and then I'll make up, like, a a brand to go with it all. Um, So I did three different suited up robots with three different head designs and then I came up with a logo 
Um, and 3029 was the year and kind of, I didn't have a story to go with this. I just came up like, I want to see the image of a suited up Mm -hmm. robot. Um, so as I was making this, I was kind of just spitballing the story in my head. And so what I thought it was is, um, humans have been long dead, but our technology has survived and AI is thriving and doing like it has its own civilization and doing its own thing. And humans have been gone for so long that the like the AIs don't don't remember them. They don't talk like there's no records of humanity because it's just so long ago and it didn't matter. Um, and then along come these these AI programs and they just for whatever reason they're fascinated with this once lost culture. And so all they have to go off of is like a couple fashion magazines. Like that's the only like artifacts left of humanity. So they build themselves human bodies and make themselves suits and carry around hot bean water, but they don't understand the why of it. They're just kind of, they have a romance with once what once was, but they don't understand anything about it. I looked at it and thought those three robots are actually one robot. (laughs) You know, there's some guy who like developed like the ability to upload, you know, human consciousness into a robot. He did it by uploading himself into these three robots. Then he locked the technology up so nobody else could ever do it. Okay. And he became, like, the corporate king of the world. Kind of like, uh, <laughs> is it Surrogate with Bruce Willis? That movie wasn't very good, was I it? I didn't see it, but, yeah, but you know, the, yeah. that idea, but then he's in three of them somehow. And yeah, yeah. So he's, you know, this the ultimate multitasking, like, genius. So he clones himself and then... Yeah, but yeah. then they start to diverge in opinion and yeah, so yeah, on that'd as be they cool. begin. Yeah. So I just, you know, I, I spun a whole thing off that. But, mm-hmm. but what would you say, like, just to kind of maybe, you know, end up, by going back to one of the earlier things you're talking about, what would you say to the, you know, kid in like a similar position to you and I, who's like in the little village and is like, there's no path. They don't see a path. <laughs> like, what do you think is, what's the path? Like, what do you think is the um, thing you, I mean, the path always changing, but what do you think is the thing you wish you knew then um, you know, that maybe would have made it easier? Um, I think like I, I figured it out pretty early on and it like it, it's the truest piece of advice like for anything is it's all about the practice. It's all about the mileage you put into it. Um, anybody who's good, like really good at something, there's, it's probably because they eat, breathe and sleep that thing. They didn't just, yeah, you don't want to be talented, talented people. Like I think you and Gregory talked yeah. about this. Talented people can't deal with failure and they give up easy and they don't know how to work hard. You want to like, yeah, you want to have that fire under your butt and just do it for its sake. And eventually things click into place. Eventually you find the, the place for that. And that was kind of with me. I was, I was drawing on the side all the time, but I had like, there weren't comic cons yet. I wasn't going to them. I was like, pouring you know hours and hours of my time into these illustrations that nobody was looking at online and I wasn't finding any place to put them like in the real world and then suddenly I went to a con and people paid me money for them and it was like just like click oh my god this is what I've put all these hundreds of hours of work into this is where it needs to start going and then my workload just like doubled because I'd found the place for it and so again and again that place didn't exist while I was putting the hundreds of hours of work into this thing. So if you find something that you're really passionate about and, you know, brings you joy, don't worry if there's not a place for it yet. It's probably just that you haven't found it yet or it hasn't, it's not a thing yet. Well, thanks. I think that's good advice, especially because, um, well, as you say, like, a lot of times I see people that are very discouraged because they don't feel like they have enough talent. Mm. And I, I'm always trying to say to them, like, you know, you're lucky you don't have enough talent. Like, because, like you say, the talent can get you so far and then you hit a wall. Yeah. And then, you know, you know that's fine. But, like, if you don't know how to get through the wall, it's very difficult. Uh, and a lot of times talented people, quote-unquote talented people, give up. Like, Many ch- most child projects don't continue doing. They the burn thing. out doing the thing, right? They're, yeah, because yeah. they hit a wall and it's never been hard, and now yeah. they don't know what to do. And now mm-hmm. it's hard. It's and, and it's not fun anymore. And, I, and in some ways, if you just early on focus on having fun, <laughs> and like, yeah. it won't always be fun, but like you can at least um, uh, learn how to have fun <laughs> and like make things fun and like you mm-hmm. know what to 
and, and persevere when it's not fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think the other thing that you say is interesting is like, like the, the whole world just keeps changing and, you know, you can't just, on one hand, you can't be so, uh, tied into the thing you're doing that you think you can't do it another way. Like I've seen people who like, they made a lot of money on Facebook ads and then all, or, 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 and all of a sudden Facebook doesn't work anymore for them that way. And, you know, now they don't know what to do. And, but the reverse is also true. Like you see people who like, um, they just assume there's no path. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like there's always, you know, some path and it's maybe going to change a bunch and you got to like, on one hand kind of be malleable yeah. uh, and try different things. Uh, and at, on the other hand, I think you have to kind of, um, just really be conscious of the fact that, um, there's going to be some problem <laughs> at some point yeah. and you need to like, just kind of have the wherewithal to like see that coming but also the solution is maybe coming too mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of times like as you say like the world just isn't um like maybe the world would catch up with what you're doing in, s- in some respects like that happens and when that boom happens you know be ready to you know catch it yeah yeah I, when that website my, boom or the youtube boom or you know whatever boom it is mm-hmm. you know f- be ready to, to get in there my daughter was looking when she was younger and looking at thinking about high school or university. She was um, kind of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, what you know, job I should train for? <laughs> I was saying, I remember saying to her, like, you know, when I went to university, um, half the jobs that exist now didn't exist. Yeah. Like half the people I know who like got a degree, you, you're, you included, they're not doing that thing they trained for precisely. Um, you know, yeah. like you're not like, you know, you do graphic design, when you're I was, not a graphic designer, you know yeah. what I mean? But like when I was going to school, one of the big things we were, I remember like a big focus was on building flash intros for sites. Remember when that yeah. was a thing? It was like, you need to learn how to do that because this is probably going to be your job. And then, you know, that died out real quick. Even like websites, I... I yeah. always didn't like that the yeah, focus was... are building websites and stuff. Well, yeah, there's so many great, like, templated sites out there. I'm so glad for them because I didn't really ever want to do website design. And thank God I didn't put all my eggs in that basket. And that's what everybody was telling yeah. me is, like, learn how to do websites because that's where the money is. And I'm glad I didn't do that. <laughs> I just think it's, like, it's, it is one of those things where if you, if you really just focus on, focus on build, developing a skill that's mm-hmm. transferable, yeah. then you can just transfer it. Yeah. But if you've like decided you're going to do this, there's a path and I'm going to take that path. It might work out. It might not. Like maybe you end up being phased out by an AI and maybe (laughs) you end up having a brilliant career, but you know, you're on that path. (laughs) And like, I feel like, you know, it's a dangerous place sometimes to be like on a path that is going one place. Yeah. Yeah. No, good. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll let you get back to drawing robots.